0: Um, kind of asking the same questions that we have, is what on earth happened? Where did God go? How did He disappear? Now, just so you know, that these are all recorded. And we will make sure that they get up there. Evan has always taken care of that for us. And obviously, uh, with everything that's been going on, he's been behind. Uh, We're going to try to get in there and get some of these things caught up. They are online. We can also make CDs for y'all. I know it's antiquated, but it is possible. We can do it. Um, It takes a little bit of effort, but we can certainly get those for you. If you don't know how to work, iTunes or podcast or anything like that. We also have a bunch of teenagers we will give lessons on how to operate your phones and computers and iPads and whatnot. So uh, just don't hesitate to ask. They charge 25 bucks an hour plus a minimum of $50 service fee. So hook them up they got to buy food so they eat a lot. So, anyway, as we've been in this, we've been looking at the different aspects of where did God go and what happened? How did he disappear? And one of the things that we've been talking about, we introduced this idea last week is the concept of atonement. And so we're going to get into that a little deeply, but let's backtrack just a hair because I want to look at as the expectations that we should have on God. In other words, if we ask God something, should we have a confident expectation that He is going to respond in the way that we want? And some say yes, some say no. Some say, I don't know, right? In other words, what we're getting at is that if we're, if we're specifically talking to the idea of healing, but if we're asking God to heal somebody, all right, some groups will tell you like, well, you are wasting your breath because God doesn't heal today. Some will say, if it's God's will, He will heal And some will say, of course it's God's will to heal, which is where we would be. And so, as we get into this and we look at this, we're like, okay, what is going on? Well, we have to examine the Scriptures. That's where we got to go all the time. Can you imagine? Now, let's think about this for a minute. Could you imagine what the body of Christ would look like today if all we did is when we read something that God said, we just took Him seriously about it? Could you imagine what would happen? In other words, we wouldn't go around questioning it all the time. Well, I wonder what God really meant by this, or I wonder if he wants me to do this. You know, it's, it's, it's the idea, it's like, should I, should I share the gospel with somebody? Does God want that person saved? I'm not sure if he does or not. I'm just not going to talk to them about it. What does Scripture say? We, I mean, I've literally heard somebody, a, a, a church elder one time, not here, but somewhere else, make the statement that's like, listen, it's not our job to get these people saved. We're going to let somebody else do that. But once they get saved, we'll let them come in here and we'll disciple them. We'll help them grow in their faith the Lord. And I'm thinking, have you ever read your Bible? Do you know what it says? I mean, you know the commission that Jesus sent, gave to the disciples that you go into all the world and preach the gospel. Why did that stop? We don't even go into our neighborhoods and preach the gospel. We kind of wait until they come to us. We look for opportunities that present themselves before us. And we're like, okay, I think I'll do it this time. Sometimes I won't. I don't know. I don't want to be uncomfortable. What if they ask me a question I don't know how to answer? What do I do with that? You know? And that was never the issues that we see in Scripture. We just saw people that were bold enough to just take Jesus at His word. Hey, He told me to do it. I'm just going to do it. It is what it is. Do you realize that Paul preached many times and never had a convert? Think about that. So if you've ever shared the Gospel with somebody and they didn't get saved, you and Paul have something in common. Pretty good company. Now, he got beaten and stoned and jailed and all of that, so we'll let him keep that stuff. But you getting rejected, not the end of the world. But what expectation can we have? Well, we've been reading in Psalm 103. Now, let's look at this again. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And forget not all His benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercy, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. You notice that that David's not writing this saying like, you know, if God wants to do this, he can. He's saying it pretty matter of fact. It's kind of like the idea that we say that all it's God's will that all should be saved. We're very matter of fact about that. Why? Because we know that it is because the scripture, he says that about all of these things. He's not questioning it. He's not not on the fence about it. He's not like, well, I don't know if it's God's will and all of this. He just says, this is what it is. And you see, as we progress in this, we've got to adopt this mindset that if God says something in His Word, that's it. We just accept it. The reason we do that is because He didn't sit here and say a question or ask questions and all that. He says, take me at my word. Trust me in this. It's kind of like the idea, when he says here, forget not his benefits, one of the benefits of God is certainly uh, forgiveness of sins, forgiving of iniquities, and we'll get into that kind of idea a little bit deeper, but healing your diseases and, and whatnot. It's, it's, you know, when we think about like the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, do you realize that those are not man-given rights? The government did not grant those to you, the right to bear arms, the right to free speech. What they recognize is we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. They didn't say we declare as a governmental entity that all men are created equal. They're self-evident that all men are created equal. And they have the inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the government's job is not to grant those rights, but to protect those rights. So if you are an American citizen in, in the United States, you do not wait for the government to tell you if it's okay for you to own a gun. Or if it's okay for you to do whatever that is granted to you by God, it's their job to protect it, not tell you if you can or cannot do it. You guys following that? Now think about it. Let's go over here. In Psalm 103, your right as a child of God are all the things that we just read. Forgiveness, healing, redemption, the crowning and tender mercies. The satisfaction from God. It's your right as a child of God. You guys see what I'm saying? You following that logic? It's the same thing. If our Bill of Rights are nothing more than a list of things that God has granted, where do you think they got that information If you're questioning whether they were believers or not, go read the debates that went on as they were framing all of the Bill of Rights and the Constitution and all this other stuff. It is littered with scriptural references. So if that is their job as a government, is nothing more than to protect those rights given to you, then it is our job as believers in Christ to protect what the Word said is our rights as a child of God. Amen? You guys with me? We have to protect it. How do we protect it? We have to know what it says. If you don't know what your rights as a United States citizen is, you will not act on the legality of those rights. You will question it. You'll waver on it. You don't know. I mean, if an intruder breaks into your house looking to do your harm, do you have the right to shoot them? You better know before you pull the trigger. Bad things can happen. Right? So we have to know where we stand. That is number one. Now, let's put this back to what we've been talking about. We've been talking about the expectation of the Messiah. What would happen when the Messiah came? And we talked about four miracles. You guys remember them? I think I got them up on the screen. Jared, I got them? There you go. You've got the cleansing of a leper, casting out of the deaf and dumb spirit, the healing of birth defects, and the raising of the dead after three days. Now, I don't want to spend a ton of time in that again. But you've got to remember that these miracles that Jesus was performing were not just abstract things. There was an expectation that when the Messiah came, when Messiah was on earth, these are things that only He could do and would do. There was no doubt in their mind. And He did them. He performed all of them. The other thing that I showed you last week was the woman with the issue of blood. She said, if I could just touch the hem of His garment, I will be made whole. Twelve years she dealt with this, went to every doctor, suffered greatly as a result of that, both financially and physically. Can you imagine? And in her head, she knew if I could only touch the hem of his garment, I'll be made completely whole. Where does she come up with this idea? Why not touch his flip-flops? As I said last week, stroke his beard. Jesus probably had a pretty awesome beard. I mean, he's Jesus, right? Like, what good Jewish guy doesn't have a great beard? Most of them do. Some of them, not so much. Jesus... Would have been awesome. He used beard oil, just so you know. I'm just kidding. But where did she come up with this? And not only that, but in Mark 6, you see other people did the same thing. They brought all the sick to him. And they said, if we touched the hem of his garment, we'd be made whole. As I showed you last week, that word hem uh, is not the word hem. It is the word wings. that is used in Greek. It's used in Malachi 4.2 as well. It is talking about at the zitzis that were on their clothing at the bottom. You'll see them wear them today around their waist. They'll, they'll put them on there. It was to remind them to keep the commandments. And they look like this. This is called a tallit. This is what they use today in case you weren't here last week, but each corner of this, there are four corners obviously, each corner has five knots of eight strings. And the word zitzit in the gematria, when you add up the letters in Hebrew, comes to the number 600 plus eight strings and five knots for you math majors equals 613, and how many commandments were there? 613. It was a reminder to them that they must keep the commandments. So, when they would put this on, now during Jesus' time, this was a part of their clothing. It later became this, this tallit that they'd put on and take off. But this is what they would wear as a prayer shawl. They'd put it on over their shoulders. If you go over to Jerusalem, you'll see it. Um, You can see them in in any Messianic congregation or Jewish congregation today. You'll see guys preaching this stuff. To me, I move my arms too much. That would never work. All right? I have to pin it on where it is a cape. But... He would wear it like this. When they go into their prayer closet, they would do this because they knew that this was the hiding place. But what did we see in Malachi 4.2? That says, When the Son of Righteousness comes, the Son of Righteousness is a title of Messiah, He will come with healing in His wings. It's the same exact word. If I just touch the hem of His garment, I will be made whole. You realize that that wasn't abstract. It wasn't like, I wonder if that's going to work. That's kind of weird. Right? I mean, it is. Let's be honest. If I had shoes that healed, that all you knew is you had to do is you had to sniff my gym shoes because they had magic powers and they would heal you. But you knew it would work. How many of you all would smell them stanky things? <laughs> You're like, I'd rather be sick. I don't blame you. I've smelled them. They're awful. I mean, the thing is, guys, this isn't abstract. There was a confident expectation because of what the Word had said, of what God had said through the prophet Micah. You see, we have to excuse me, Malachi, not Micah. We have to go back to what did God say? That's really what it comes down to. We have to begin to look at this. Are there promises in His Word? You realize His Word came from Him. Promises in His Word that if we just simply do and we simply follow, then we can have an expectation that God will perform. And that's where we're at. What does that have to do with healing? We see, and understand what we're talking about. We have to understand a word called atonement. You have to know what this is, because what we're going to begin to get into today is the idea, is healing in the atonement? In other words, the atonement is what Jesus did and performed, and we'll describe this a little more in detail later. But when He died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, did He at the same time make a way for us to walk in health at all times, to not be sick, to not worry about this stuff. So we have to begin to look at this. Now, last week as we began to look at atonement and what it is, we kind of defined it, we looked at it a little in depth. We also have to understand that there are multiple atonement theories. Multiple. And I say multiple, I mean just that. Where they come from. Here's a list of them. And just so you know, this is not all inclusive. Everybody has one. There's all sorts of different theories out there. Um, I'll tell you all of these are wrong. You know how I know they're wrong? Because they don't line up with Scripture. Now, let me read you the description of these. I'm literally going to just read this because um, you need to hear some of this. And if you know the word, you'll pick up on what's wrong. So they ransom to Satan. This view sees the atonement of Christ as a ransom paid to Satan to purchase man's freedom and release him from being enslaved to Satan. It is based on a belief that man's spiritual condition is bondage to Satan and that the meaning of Christ's death was to secure God's victory over Satan. This theory has little, if any, scriptural support and has had few supporters throughout church history. It is unbiblical that it sees Satan rather than God as the one who required that a payment be made for sin. Thus, it completely ignores the demands of God's justice as seen through Scripture. It also has a higher view of Satan Satan than it should, and views him as having more power than he really does. There is no scriptural support for the idea that the sinner owes anything to Satan, but throughout scripture we see that God is the one who requires a payment for sin. All right, that's number one. How about the recapitulation theory? This theory states that the atonement of Christ has reversed the course of mankind from disobedience to obedience. It believed that Christ's life recapitulated all the stages of human life, and in doing so reversed the course of disobedience initiated by Adam. This theory cannot be supported scripturally. It's pulled out of thin air. In other words, is if a Jesus came and he died and he turned everything around, now everybody's good now, right? Yeah, that didn't work out so well. How about the dramatic theory? This view sees the atonement of Christ as securing the victory in a divine conflict between good and evil and winning man's release from bondage to Satan. The meaning of Christ's death was to ensure God's victory over Satan and to provide a way to redeem the world out of its bondage to evil. Again, not scripts. This is the cosmic chess match where they're arm wrestling and, oh, thank goodness, Jesus won. The mystical mystical theory, the mystical theory sees the atonement of Christ as a triumph over his own sinful nature through the power of the Holy Spirit. He was simply and merely a man, but the power of the Holy Spirit allowed him to go through it. Those who hold this view believe that the knowledge of this will myst- mystically influence man and awake his God consciousness. They also believe that man's spiritual condition is not the result of sin, but simply a lack of God consciousness. Clearly, this is unbiblical. To believe this one must uh, believe that Christ had a sin nature, while Scripture is clear that Jesus was a perfect God, man sinless in every aspect of his nature. Now, as you get through this, I'm going to tell you that people have melded these things together. This one here has become, the language that's used in this has become very popular today having a God conscience. Moral influence theory. This is the belief that the atonement of Christ is a demonstration of God's love, which causes man's heart to soften and repent. Those who hold this view believe that man is spiritually sick and in need of help, and that a man is moved to accept God's forgiveness by seeing God's love for man. They believe that the purpose of the, and meaning of Christ's death was to demonstrate God's love toward man. While it is true that Christ's atonement is the ultimate example of love of God, this view is unbiblical because it denies the true spiritual condition of man that they are dead in sin and transgression. It denies that God actually requires a payment for sin. This view of Christ's atonement leaves mankind without a true sacrifice or payment for sin. The last two that I've read you have become very popular recently. Not They will never call them these, these names, but this is what they are because these things have been around for thousands of years. Example theory. This view sees the atonement of Christ as simply providing an example of faith and obedience to inspire man to be obedient to God. Those who hold this view believe that man is spiritually alive and that Christ's life and atonement were simply an example of true faith and obedience and should serve as an inspiration to men to live a similar life of faith and obedience. This and the moral influence theory are similar in that they both deny that God's justice actually requires payment for sin and that Christ's death on the cross was that payment the main difference between the moral influence theory and the example theory is that the moral influence theory says that Christ's death teaches us how much God loves us and the example theory says that Christ's death teaches us how to live of course it is true that Christ is an example for us to follow even his death but the example theory fails to recognize man's true spiritual condition and that God's justice requires payment for sin which man is not capable of paying Commercial theory. The commercial theory views the atonement of Christ as bringing infinite honor to God. This resulted of God giving Christ a reward which he did not need, and Christ passed that reward on to man. Those who hold this view believe that man's spiritual condition is that of a dishonoring God, and so Christ's death, which brought infinite honor to God, can be applied to sinners for salvation. This theory, like many others, denies the true spiritual state of unregenerate sinner. Okay? Last one. Governmental theory. This view sees the atonement of Christ as demonstrating God's high regard for His law and His attitude towards sin. It is Christ's death that God has a reason to forgive the sins of those who repent and accept Christ's substitutionary death. Those who hold this view believe that man's spiritual condition is as one who has violated God's moral law and that the meaning of Christ's death was to be a substitute for the penalty of sin. Because Christ paid the penalty for sin, it is possible for God to legally forgive those who accept Christ as their substitute. This view falls short in that it does not teach that Christ actually paid the the penalty of the actual sins of any people, but instead his suffering simply showed mankind that God's laws were broken and that some penalty was paid." (sighs) We made it. I know that was a lot. I know you didn't care one iota about any of that. But Why am I telling you this stuff? Is we need to know what is going on. When we talk about atonement, you need to know that just because we believe something doesn't mean that everybody agrees with it. And we're going to go straight to Scripture. Governmental theory gets you close. But we need to look at this from a biblical viewpoint. And so in order to do that, we need to understand what we believe. We believe in the penal substitutionary... If I didn't spell this right, don't say anything. And if you can't read it, then you don't know. Penal substitutionary atonement. The idea here is that Jesus paid the penalty for sin... For somebody else. Let's define these terms. The first one is penal. What does penal mean? I've got the descriptions up there, I believe. There we go. Relating to, used for, or prescribing the punishment of offenders under the legal system of an act or offense is punishable by law. Our penal system. The punishment for the behaviors of individuals today is subject to our penal system. It's our court system. So, substitutionary. What does that mean? It's a person or thing acting or serving in place of another. Okay, fair enough. The last word is atonement. It's the satisfaction or reparation. I know that's a big word in the news right now. For a wrong or injury, is amends, it's reconciliation. So in other words, there was a punishment prescribed from the breaking of God's laws, our sin nature, that we are dead. But Jesus acted as our substitute in that punishment and atone or paid for our reconciliation. You guys following me on that? Here's the theory. Here's uh, a better description. This theory sees the atonement of Christ as being a vicarious, substitutionary sacrifice that satisfies the demands of God's justice upon sin. With His sacrifice, Christ paid the penalty of man's sin, bringing forgiveness, imputing righteousness, and reconciling man to God. Those who hold this view believe that every aspect of man, his mind, will, and emotions have been corrupted by sin and that man is totally depraved and spiritually dead. This view holds that Christ's death paid the penalty for sin and that through faith, man can accept Christ's substitution as payment for sin. This view of the atonement aligns most accurately with Scripture in its view of sin, the nature of man, and the result of death, uh, the death of Christ on the cross. When we look at this, what do we always say? Now there are offshoots to all of these, but the bottom line is, is that Jesus died a death that we deserve because sin brings death. But Jesus said, I came to give you life and give you life more abundantly. You see, if you understand the entirety of the Old Testament and what it is doing, it is all about atonement. It's paying for something. Without the shedding of a the blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. We needed that atonement. They had it in the Old Testament. I want to read you right now Levitical, Leviticus 4. This is one chapter talking about the sin of offering. There were five main offerings. Two of them were required, the sin and trespass offering. And then there were three that were sweet savor offering, burnt offering, meal offering, all that kind of stuff that were voluntary. You could do. Now I want you to watch this. All right. Leviticus chapter four. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel saying, if a person sins unintentionally, so you didn't mean to, against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which ought not be done and does any of them, Okay, now, has anybody accidentally sinned against God? Sure. We've done something I didn't think about, I didn't mean to, whatever. All right. If the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord for his sin, which he has sinned, a young bull, without blemish, as a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the door of the tabernacle, of meeting before the Lord, lay his hand on the bull's head, and kill the bull before the Lord. Why do they do that? Because now they're associating. They bring it in, they put their hands upon it, and as that priest kills it, you're putting that on them. You are associating yourself with that. Then the anointed priest shall take some of the bull's blood and bring it to the tabernacle of meeting. The priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord, in front of the veil of the sanctuary. The priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar. There was four horns on the altar where they burned these things. Of the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord, which is the tabernacle of meeting, and he shall pour the remaining blood of the bull at the base of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. He shall take from it all the fat of the bull, which is the sin offering, the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat which is on the entrails, the two kidneys, the fat is on them, and by the flanks and the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys he shall remove. And it was taken from the bull of the sacrifice, of the peace offering, and a priest shall burn them on the altar of the burnt offering. But the bull's hide and all his flesh with his head and legs, his entrails and offal, the whole bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place where the ashes are poured out, and burn it on wood with fire, where the ashes are poured out, it shall be burnt. All because somebody unintentionally sinned. This is what they went through. Doesn't that sound fun? Every detail had to be followed. And remember that these sacrifices, the, uh, the uh, sweet savor ones, the ones that were uh, voluntary, were what fed the priest. But this time, this whole thing had to be consumed. They could not eat any of it. It was taken out and it was burned. But guess what? We're not done. Verse 13. If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they have done something against any of the commandments. Remember, 613. Any of them. You miss one. This is what you got to do. What should not be done and are guilty of the sin that they have committed becomes known. The assembly shall offer a young bull for the sin, and shall bring it before the tabernacle of meeting. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord. Then the bull shall be killed before the Lord. The anointed priest shall bring some of the bull's blood to the tabernacle of meeting. Then the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. And he shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar, which is before the Lord, which is the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall pour the remaining blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is the door of the tabernacle of meeting. He shall take all of the fat from it and burn it at the, on the altar. And he shall do with the bull as he did with the bull as a sin offering. Thus he shall do with it. So the priest shall make atonement, there's that word, for them, and it shall be forgiven them. Then he shall carry the bull outside the camp and burn it, uh, burn it as he burned the first bull. It is a sin offering for the assembly. So now you have the individual, now we've got the whole assembly. Can you imagine? So basically, it's, 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 if any individual does this, they have to do it. If they, as the assembly, the nation does it, they have to do this. Doesn't this sound awful? Doesn't this sound like an incredible amount of work? Could you imagine the amount of bulls that are dying? I mean, my goodness. Well, we're not done. Verse 22, when a ruler has sinned and done something unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord God and anything which should not be done and is guilty, of, or if his sin which he has committed comes to his knowledge, he shall bring as a, his offering a kid of the goats, a male without blemish. He shall lay his hands on the head of the goat and kill it in place at the place where they kill the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar and burnt offering, and pour his blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering. And he shall burn all his fat at the altar like the fat of the sacrifice of the peace offering. So the priest shall make a t- for his concerning his sin, and it shall be forgiven him. Oh man! So you know you got the, the priests have sinned, you got the nation has sinned, now you got the ruler has sinned. Do you leave anybody out? Verse twenty-seven: If any of the common people sins, that's you and I. We're the common folk. Unintentionally, by doing something against the commandments of the Lord, is anything which ought not be done, and is guilty. Or, if his sin which he has committed comes to his knowledge, he shall bring as an offering the kid of goats, a female without blemish. For sin which he has committed, and he shall lay his hands on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering at the place of the burnt offering. Then the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering, and pour all the remaining blood out of the base of the altar. He shall remove all the fat, as fat is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering. The priest shall burn it on the altar for a sweet aroma to the Lord. So the priest shall make atonement for him, and it shall be forgiven him. But if he brings a lamb as his sin offering, he shall bring a female without blemish. Then he shall lay his hands on the head of the sin offering and kill it as a sin offering at a place where they kill the burnt offering. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar, of the burnt offering, and pour all the remaining blood at the base of the altar. He shall remove all his fat, as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering. Then the priest shall burn it on the altar according to the offerings made by the fire of the Lord. So the priest shall make atonement for his sin that he has committed, and it shall be forgiven him. Now we're done. And you notice what was the key component in all of this? Unintentional sin. In other words, I didn't mean to do this. How did they unintentionally sin? They accidentally touched a dead body. They now needed to make atonement. If they missed any of the commandments, all 613, any one of them they messed up unintentionally, they had to go through this. Read the rest of Leviticus about the intentional ones and all the other things that they had to go through. Can you imagine? You think that that tabernacle had shedding of blood. Oh my goodness. Day in and day out. Not to mention that the high priest had to go in and sacrifice a lamb every, at 9 o'clock and 3 o'clock every day. And on the Day of Atonement, they did a third one. Every day, there was an offering made to the Lord with the shedding of blood. But what did we notice? That the atonement came as a result of something being put in as a substitute for the individual who unintentionally committed the sin. They deserved judgment, but God created a way where something else could be associated and pay the penalty for that. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You guys see how this concept is not a new concept. This isn't something that we just put together. This idea is all throughout Scripture you need to understand something is that if God is good then he must demand justice because if he lets you off the hook he is no longer good if a judge in this earth today looked at a rapist who just said I'm sorry I didn't mean to or I'll never do it again that may be true but you still demand justice for the act that was performed. Otherwise, justice is not served. Now, somebody steps into his place is like, listen, he did screw up, and he, but he has learned his lesson, he won't do it. I will take that punishment. That is literally what we're talking about here. Both bad. If they miss any of the commandments of the Lord... They miss them all, and this is what has to be done. You guys following in that idea. This is not a New Testament thing. This is an all throughout Scripture thing. The idea of atonement, making appeasement. Now, there are guys out there today that have gone away from this idea. Here's some pictures of them, and I'll tell you who these guys are. Brian McLaren. Now, Brian McLaren has gotten very popular in recent years, in probably the last 15 years. He does not believe that the entirety of Scripture is God-breathed. He believes that the Old Testament is stories about man seeking God and writing down descriptions of what they thought God was like. But when Jesus showed up, that He really tells us how God was through His peace and His mercy and His love. And that God of the Old Testament is just man's fictitious idea of trying to explain the things that they see, but they're not enlightened. That when God was angry, he would send thunder and, and lightning. And if there was a fire, oh, God was mad at us. That it was this pagan idea that infiltrated the nation of Israel. And these guys are simply writing down what they thought happened. But in that, there are some moral stories. Jonah never really was in a great whale, but there is a story that we can take from that. What are they doing? They're undermining Scripture. What do we see in Genesis 3? Did God really say that you can't eat of that apple? Or that tree? Not the apple. You see, these ideas have infiltrated. What he will say is that God is not a cosmic child abuser. He would never kill his only son. Man killed Jesus. But Jesus willingly died as an example to us because of his love and his mercy. There is no greater love than this than a man lay down his life for his friends. Jesus knew what was going to happen. Now you may think, okay, well this sounds a little crazy. Nobody truly believes that. Oh, they do. Here's some of them. You've got Brian McLaren, as I told you. You've got down here, Rod Bell. Rod Bell was a pastor of, um, I forget the name of the church, but he was up in Michigan. Wrote a book called Love Wins. Took the nation by storm. We don't serve a monster God. We serve a God of love and mercy. There is no idea of hell. This eternal punishment. Then you've got down here in the bottom, Paul Young, the writer of The Shack. Now, The the Shack book um, took, uh, took the country by storm. I mean, it was just a novel, it was a story. A lot of people read it, a lot of people liked it. You know, you can read any book you want, and if you're spiritually aware, you can throw out the bad and be okay. But do you realize that a lot of people are going to adopt their theories of this? The idea that God does not send judgment. He's not out to get you. He's out to reform you. He's out to make you better. He gives these ideas. There's a movie made about it a while back. I know some of you guys probably in here went and saw it. And the guy at the top right, and the reason I waited until the end here, his name is Brian Zahn. He pastors a church in St. Joseph, Missouri. He's known all over the country. He was a part of the charismatic movement for many, many years. Was well ingrained in there uh, with the movers and the shakers. I could throw out big names. He had them all. Uh, he was well, well known. Pretty solid guy. And then about 10, 15 years ago, something like that, he was introduced to this concept that Brian McLaren, as well as others, there's many, many more that are putting these ideas out there, that, that you know God would never sacrifice. God loves us. And so because God loves us, He would never put anything on us like they describe. His ideas have infiltrated not only where uh, He's at, but it's also infiltrated people in this area. As a matter of fact, even this morning, as a matter of fact, um, I saw a guy post something on Facebook questioning, this is a former pastor, he's become a disciple of Brian's, um, questioning whether even the devil exists. Or is it just kind of, the devil is us, our, our naughty natures. Now, who do you think comes up with these ideas? The guy I just mentioned. You see, if we can get away from the idea that God demands justice, then you don't necessarily need forgiveness of sin, and you don't have to live a certain way. You can do what you want. God made you this way. Be who you are. You see, this idea has crept throughout every part of society, not just theologically, but, but look at what we have today. We talk about love wins, right? Well, does it? Does love really win? And what is love? We don't define that term. You see, we, we want to change the definition of words. We want to we make it fit how we want our lifestyle to be. We were talking about this this morning. We want to come to God on our terms. I don't believe in that God. See, God loves me the way I am, with all my faults. We hear that stuff all the time. But is that true? Does God truly love everybody? Yes, in the sense that He created a way for everybody. But He does not love everybody. The way that we live. He hates sin so much, he literally died for it. So you don't have to be bound to it anymore. But we throw this stuff out there, and it is, it's creeped into the church. And now you see churches today that are heading way out of place. Do you realize atheist churches are popping up? Why? Because church today is nothing more than a social club. It might as well be the Rotary, the JCs, the Optimists. I mean that's what it might as well be one of those because we have a membership and we get together, but God has no bearing in my life. As I said earlier this morning, what would happen if we as the body of Christ looked at the word and simply said, "I will do what you have told me to do. I will not make excuses. I will do what you've told me to do." In order to undermine the authority of Scripture to get what you want, you have to come up with ideas that get away from what Scripture says. These guys are leading the charge. Now, I don't want to spend all day talking about these guys, but you need to understand it. They have a major influence. Rod Bell was preaching to church in Tarchio recently. The idea is from his book. Why? Because... We are moved by every wind of doctrine. We are not able to discern truth because we've not had our senses exercised. It's what Hebrews says. You see, this is why I hound on the word. I mean, you know, some people, I've had people commented like, boy, you, you just, you're so thorough. You don't, you don't leave any stone unturned, and there's a reason for that. I mean, my goodness, when's, name the last time you had a sermon preached about the penal substitutionary atonement. How many of you guys before today didn't even know that word existed or that series of words? Yeah. You know the idea, but you never heard the term. Well, the reason we're doing this is to make sure everybody's on the same page. Before we get to the idea of what healing is and is it in the atonement, we ought to know what the atonement is we're talking about. So where does this idea come from? Well, it's all throughout Scripture, but how about in Isaiah 53? We're going to get into Isaiah 52 and 53 here in the weeks to come, but you need to understand what this is saying because we know if you've been in church for any amount of time, this is a prophecy about the Messiah. They don't even like the Jews, uh, non-believing Jews. They don't like uh, the rabbis. Don't like their, their people to read this. They don't read this. Many times you read it for the first time, like I had no idea what this sound, this was even there. Uh, there was one guy that read it and said, "Boy, he was a, he was a Jewish rabbi. He was." cornered by a, a believing Christian and said, will you just read this to me? And, and so he reads, he's like, boy, that does sound a lot like Jesus. Ah, but we don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, so it can't be him. Okay? Isaiah 53, we're going to start in verse 3. He w- has despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and he did not esteem him. Now look for the words that sounds like Jesus taking our punishment. Surely, he has borne our griefs. Okay? What happens when somebody's borne something? They've taken it on themselves. All right? So we're going to write this word He's born. Not born like birth, but He's carried it on Himself. What's the next thing it says? He's carried our sorrows. Whose sorrows? Not His. Wait a minute, if He's carrying something for us, doesn't that sound like He's a substitute for us? Okay, let's go on. Yet we esteemed Him stricken. He was smitten by whom? Wait a minute. That can't be. Because God is not a moral monster. Right? We're not believing in child sacrifice. Hmm. Okay, smitten by God. He was wounded for our transgressions. Right? Right? Whose transgression is ours? Wasn't his, right? He was sinless. That's what it says. He was bruised for our iniquities. We'll go through this more in depth later, but just bear with me because I'm just wanting you to see this. It was always ours. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. What's chastisement? It's a word we don't use often anymore. But it's punishment. For whose peace? Who is it on? Jesus. Okay? By His stripes, we are healed. We will get into that in depth, I assure you. We like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own ways. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Who? Who did it? The Lord laid on him. Who laid it on him? The Father. For whom? Us all. Now remember, this is talking about the nation of Israel. That is who the new covenant was made with. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of his all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to do the slaughter. Well, who did the leading? Oh, it was the Jews. The Jews did the leading. Okay. That was sarcastic if you're not picking up on it. And as a sheep before shears, shear is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. Again, we have transgressions. Of who? My people. He was stricken. That was the punishment for the transgressions. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. Who's doing all of this? I know my handwriting is terrible. It pleased, let's just say the Father. It pleased the Father to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you, the Father, make his soul, that's Jesus, an offering for sin. What sin? The unintentional sin. And all the other ones we didn't even read. Because I didn't want to give you a lesson on Leviticus. I would not do that to you. I like you guys, okay? He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pledge of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Does that not sound like there was punishment coming as a result of sin and that somebody stepped in by the will of God and substituted themselves in there? It sure does, doesn't it? Now, the Jews will argue whether this is Jesus or not. Some of them believe that this was them, the nation of Israel. Uh, they got all sorts of a theories. The bottom line is you cannot get away from this. The idea of atonement is throughout Scripture. Sin must be atoned for. These poor Jews were just sacrificing to a God because they thought that's what God wanted, but they didn't really know. That's nonsense. We can never undermine Scripture. It literally is the foundation. Now, Andy Stanley and some of them will say that, no, we've got to get away from the Old Testament. We've got to just focus on the idea of Jesus. And it was, it's not a story. It's an event. And I agree with that in theory. But when you play that idea out, you're undermining the base and foundation of the event. You will never understand the idea of the cross if you don't understand the idea of atonement. The need for the sacrifice. You have to get back. And this is why we spend so much time digging into the quote-unquote Jewish roots of Scripture. Why we look at this from a Jewish standpoint, catching the context of what's going on. Because if you don't understand that, you won't understand anything. And then we've got all these man-made doctrines that are up there. Oh, if you just take communion. Oh, if you're just baptized as a baby. You're good to go. Get baptized, do good, pay penance, whatever. You're good to go. None of those things are true. See, Jesus and the Father and God as a whole works in predictable patterns. The idea that God works in a mysterious way is completely nonsense. The cross was not a mysterious way. The death of the Lamb was not mysterious. It was laid out from the very beginning as a substitute. Now, look at this in Hebrews 9. I'm going to push this out of the way. But you guys follow me? This is, we haven't even gone to the New Testament. We've only looked at the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with His own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. What is it talking about? The high priest of the day of atonement, sacrificed the bulls, sacrificed the goat, would enter into the holy place and cleanse them ceremonially making atonement for the nation of Israel. But Jesus, being a greater high priest, not with the blood of another, but with His own blood, stepped in. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot, to whom? God. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. God. And for this reason, he is a mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. And we're not done, but what's he talking about? Jesus stepped into that place to God. He laid his life down. God received the atonement, the sacrifice. It was a sweet-smelling aroma paid by a perfect individual. You'll notice that the sacrifices had to be without spot, without blemish. Jesus was. All of that was there reason Verse sixteen: For where there is a testament, there must also be the necessity of the death of the testator. For a testament is enforced after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. This is talking about the Mosaic covenant with, with the nation of Israel. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, "This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you." Then likewise he. Spr- sprinkled the blood with both tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. Has to be there. Verse 23, Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heaven should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but in heaven itself now, to appear in the presence of God for us, not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year, with the blood of another, talking about the Day of Atonement. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed to men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once, To bear the sins of many, to those who eagerly wait for Him, He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. What is this talking about? The punishment of sin was paid by a substitute in Jesus Himself that atoned us and gave us the right to come to God. That is penal substitutionary atonement. That is it. In a nutshell, guys, we can't get away from this. This was God's plan from the beginning of creation and mark 10:45 it says for even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life for a ransom for many that word ransom can also say substitute Read that last week. Colossians 2, verse 11. In Him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, in which you also were raised with Him through faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses. Not bad. Not like you just had a little problem. You were dead. Remember all those other atonements? They talked about it 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 left that out. You were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, harking back to that old covenant that where they had to be circumcised to be entered in. Jesus said that I want circumcision of the heart. Your heart belongs to me. He has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. I mean, guys, if this doesn't get you excited, look at what Jesus went through. Look with the nation of Israel. Remember, Paul talked about how all these things were written down for our examples. Look at John 15, verse 12. Where I quoted this earlier. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friend. Did Jesus' life get taken from him, or did he lay it down? Was he that willing sacrifice? He said, I lay it down. Let's look at some more. Because this is all over the place. 1 Peter 2, verse 23. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. By whose stripes you were healed. Again, we'll go back to that later. But what's it talking about? Did you die to sins? No, you didn't. Jesus did. But when we give our hearts to Him, it's like we died with Him. That's what baptism is a representative of. You can't sprinkle. You must be dunked. It's a Jewish thing. You die to sins, buried with Him in the ground, and are raised to life once again. So it's not God cleaning you up. It's God bringing you back to life. You were dead in sins. Jesus died for us. What does this go back to? Exodus 12. I will pass the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. When the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. What's this talking about? talking about the Passover lamb. The one that they celebrate every year that has to be without spot, without blemish. They had to sacrifice the lamb. They had to consume the lamb. But the most important aspect in that was the application of the blood on the doorpost. That he says that when I come and I see the blood, I will pass over you. That was the angel of death. The angel of death still is moving today, but the blood has been applied to those who believe. He sees the blood. We will not face death. Yeah, we might die physically. We will die physically. There's no might to it. We will die physically if Jesus tarries, if He holds off and doesn't come back before that. But the blood has been applied, and that punishment has been taken care of. Think about that. I know I say this a lot, but in the Passover, if they did everything else right but missed the application of the blood, that firstborn would die in the household. Firstborn of everything. Firstborn son, firstborn animal. You have to apply the blood. First Peter three eighteen. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. I mean, are you guys picking up on these trends? I got a few more. But now the righteousness, Romans 3, verse 21, Now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how righteousness comes, through faith in Jesus. Not believing that He is God, but believing in Him, putting your faith in Him. To all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, from God, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood, through faith. To demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now the qualifier there is faith in Jesus. But you notice how it says that he would pass over them. Over the sins that were committed. And there's the word propitiation. Another word we don't use often. But it carries the idea of appeasement. Of a satisfaction specifically in this case towards God. It's a two-part act. It involves appeasing the wrath of an offended person and being reconciled to them. You've had children. They've needed propitiation. Right? They come, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. Don't ground me. I'll get it right next time. I didn't mean to punch my brother in the face. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For He made him who knew no sin to be sin for who? You and I. That we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Doesn't that sound like the sin of the world was put on Jesus? Oh yeah, that's exactly what Scripture says. Now, look at this. I'm almost done. I know I'm I'm running a little long here, but I'm almost done. Luke 22, verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover. So what have we been talking about? The Passover lamb. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill Him. They feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat. So they said to him, where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And then he will show you a large furnished upper room. There, make ready. Remember, the houses that they had, they had the downstairs part. They'd have sometimes a place for animals and stuff like that. But the upper room, same thing in in Acts chapter 2, the upper room is where everybody would stay. And they were the bigger room and they were wide open. They had an open floor plan. They would have loved it today. So they went and they found it, as he said to them, and they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come, he sat down and 12 disciples with him, and he said to them, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them. He said, This is my body, which is given for you. You do this in remembrance of me. And likewise he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for a substitute. His body and His blood. Two distinct elements. Very Jewish concept going on here. We'll get into later. But what is He doing? He's telling you, I am laying My life for you at the Passover. What is the Passover? It's from the beginning. When the blood was applied, the, lamb, or the angel passed over. He just said that this is the new covenant in My blood. This is the Passover lamb. Jump down to verse 39 in Luke 22. Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. He was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What cup? The third cup in the Passover meal, the cup of redemption. We've talked about that before. I won't go into that today. But the question comes down to is, whose will Was it that Jesus bare that cup? It was the Father's. You see, a good judge will always demand justice. Justice must be served if God is righteous, and He is. If He's going to be righteous, then He must bring judgment on mankind for sins and the breaking of the law. But if you apply that blood, Jesus stepped in as that sacrifice, that sacrificial lamb laying His life down on the cross. His body was broken his blood was shed with the application of that blood then you have had a substitute who has now atoned for your sins and so when Jesus see or when the father sees you he can pass over that judgment on you because it has already been satisfied it has been paid in full to tell us that's exactly what Jesus said you guys see how this works It's so crucial that you understand what this atonement is. Look at what they went through. Look at what Jesus went through. And then we come together and worship and be like, I don't like that song. I don't want to sing it. This is what has been done for you and for me. This is why we harp on this stuff. You need to understand atonement if you're going to understand what the atonement brings. And that's where we're going here. Do we have a confident expectation of how God will perform as a result of the atoning sacrifice that was given? The answer, of course, is yes.